electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. And here's what's ahead this hour. We're digging through the rubble. We have a five-star tech fund manager with three names to buy on this dip. None of them are in big cap tech. Be sure to listen. He'll be with us in just a moment. Plus, the crypto collapse. Of course, we're all over this one. Bitcoin sinking as China cracks down. Stocks are selling off. And Coinbase experiencing technical problems. We've got all angles of it covered. And why the chips are falling into place for the semiconductor industry will have the very latest out of Washington. But let's get right to it with today's sell-off. Dom Chu here with those numbers. A sell-off that was much more intense just two to three hours ago, Kelly. We are well off the session lows at this point. 33,798, the last trade for the Dow, off of just about three-quarters of 1%. 4,100 for the S&P 500, off about two-thirds of 1%. And the Nasdaq also keeping pace there, down about two-thirds of 1% as well. The Nasdaq composite, 13,222, the last trade there. One of the reasons why at one point throughout the course of this morning, anyway, that you've seen some outperformance on a relative basis from that Nasdaq 100 and composite is mega cap technology stocks. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, yes, it's consumer discretionary categorized that way. Alphabet Communication Services. These mega cap names, as you can see there, have held up very well considering the the level of sell-off that we saw over the course of the morning so far. So again, when shopping lists come into play on dips, oftentimes it's these mega cap stocks that are starting to catch a little bit of a bid. We'll see if that continues. And then checking on what's happening with Coinbase. You mentioned it at the start of the show here. Coinbase right now is still below the $250 reference price that we saw for its direct listing. However, well off the highs that we saw on an intraday basis right after it's open. You can see here 225 the last trade there, off 6%. Earlier this morning in the pre-market, it was down 10 to 11%. Remember, technical issues. A lot of folks couldn't buy or sell crypto on this platform during the volatility that we saw earlier today. Coinbase was taking it on the chin earlier. It's recovered some of that now, probably having some of its losses at this point here, Kelly. Back over to you. Yeah, tough timing for that one uh, since it's IPO, Don. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about the catalyst for this weakness in crypto. China cracking down and leading to a massive plunge in the price of Bitcoin over the past 24 hours. The country, responsible for 75 percent of crypto mining, is now further banning financial institutions from providing any services related to digital currencies. Our Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing for us right now with more on this story. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Kelly. Well, the hashtag... Crypto World Crushed is trending right now on Chinese social media, with a lot of investors trying to determine just how aggressive Beijing will get to try to cool off the cryptocurrency craze. Uh, Beijing reiterated its guidelines to financial firms as well as online payment providers, saying that they should not engage in direct and indirect crypto businesses. 
And at the same time, though, Alipay, WeChat, as well as the other banks are still being allowed to work with crypto exchanges that have been banned and then relocated offshore years ago. So that's being read here as a sign that this is more of a warning by Beijing and not a full-blown crackdown. Now, China heavily restricts most crypto activities, but it does tolerate regular people owning cryptocurrencies, digital tokens, of course. And uh, this, there's a lot of gray area here. So people use technical workarounds to get um, onto those cryptocurrency exchanges, such as uh, Binance, as well as Huobi, very popular here. Uh, the Chinese, though, have been feeling the pain of the crypto losses. There have been several local media reports. One of them was interesting, saying that in the past 24 hours, hundreds of thousands liquidated their positions, that some investors have been panicking after their sales transaction requests were rejected, but then those were momentarily, that was only a, a momentary a problem, and that the single biggest recorded loss is $67 million. So, a general consensus here, though, um, uh, Kelly, is that uh, for the most part, again, that this is really seen more as a warning, but there is uh, a lot of uh, bad language being used, mainly directed at Elon Musk, though, not so much at the government. Interesting point, Eunice. Real quickly, you know, we talk about Bitcoin as kind of the crypto barometer, but is that the most popular, the most liquid one in China? Um, crypto or Bitcoin? Did you say Bitcoin? Yeah. Is Bitcoin the most kind of important crypto for a lot of the Chinese public right now? Well, I think it's it's probably the same as what you'd see overseas, which is that Bitcoin is seen as a standard. But at the same time, there have been a lot of other uh, uh, there's been a lot of interest in, in some of the other digital tokens. Uh, for example, uh, one tech executive that I spoke to said that uh, that that one of the street stall hawkers uh, who he was talking to was asking him for tips on Dogecoin. So there is a lot of awareness about all of these different uh, cryptocurrencies. And uh, I think that's one of the big reasons why we're seeing this clampdown now uh, because of the fact that uh, there has been so much concern that, that people have been using gray channels that exist here to get money out of the country in order to take bigger risks and, and get into some of these more speculative trades. Yep, absolutely. Eunice, thanks so much for your time this afternoon or uh, middle of the night for you. We really appreciate it, our Eunice Yoon. Will other governments possibly follow China's lead across the globe? And what impact could these restrictions have on the crypto regulatory process here in the U.S., if any? Joining me now is Emily Parker. She's Coindesk's global macro editor. Emily, it's good to see you again. So from your point of view, how significant are these moves in China? And, and we, I should point out, as we're having this discussion, Bitcoin is already $10,000 off the lows, OK? We fell all the way down to 30000 I saw a print at 40000 There we are, 40140 We are massively massively off the lows, even as we just debate what's going on with this crackdown. Welcome to the crypto market. Yes, it's never a dull moment here. So the question about how serious is China's warning? It is actually basically a reiteration for the most part of policies that have been in place, you know, 2013, 2017. There may be some subtle differences, but there's not a whole 
there's not a big change in terms of what they're doing, but the warning is nonetheless significant because it's a signal. And it's a signal that Chinese authorities are getting nervous. And why are they getting nervous? They're getting nervous about weapon speculation. Now, if you remember, China cracked down on ICOs in 2017, and they did that because of a proliferation of scams. What China's government is most worried about is anything that could possibly endanger social stability. They want they want stability. They want they don't want unrest. And so their concern is that new investors are going to get into the market. For example, Sheepcoin, which is kind of a, a, a another dog-themed coin, um, was wildly popular in, in China recently. And I think most people would say Sheepcoin does not have real fundamentals backing it. So the Chinese authorities are watching this and they're thinking, are new investors going to come into this, the market, lose all their money, and then maybe even go to the streets and protest. And this is the last thing that they want. So that's what I think is motivating this warning. Sheepcoin, got it. Um, I guess another <laughs> question is, let's put this in context of the, the cases for owning Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. it seems to me since last fall, two major things have happened. We've democratized Bitcoin access through a variety of fintech apps here in the U.S. for the general retail public. We've also seen massive institutional demand from big insurers like Mass Mutual. The Tesla case, a little, little idiosyncratic, but even corporate America thinking about putting some of its cash into Bitcoin. Are any of those cases for owning this asset, which is supposed to be fixed at a 21 million coin supply, has, has any of that changed regardless of what's going to happen with its usage in China? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the larger narrative about Bitcoin is exactly that. It's these institutional involvement, it's institutions getting involved. That is what it's been driving up the price. That is the cause of the current bull run. And I don't think that this, this what is happening in China is going to affect that over the long term. Remember, this is not the first time that China did this. In 2017, when China cracked down on ICOs, that really sent shockwaves throughout the global crypto market. But then it, 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 it precipitated the, uh, a bull, the, the bull run right after that. So so we just I don't think this is going to cause a long term effect. Of course, if China seriously cracks down, if China seriously changes its policies, that will be another story. But I don't think this particular warning is going to cause long term damage in the crypto market. It's also interesting to look across all the crypto asset classes, so to speak. We have Ether down sharply. We have I, let's not get into Dogecoin. But for those who would say, you know, Ether's got the better usage case. Ethereum can be used to run NFTs and all of this new technology. And I like the, you know, me- the rewards better as an owner and things like that. I mean, this would seem to be indiscriminate selling across the entire crypto complex. Is it a chance for people who think there's differentiation to make that case? Definitely. I mean, this is so so there are definitely people who say that um, Ether and, and, and DeFi and all these other coins are not fundamentally tied to Bitcoin because they have different use cases and the DeFi market has been booming and Ether is used for a lot of other a lot of other things. So I think we're, it remains to be seen, but I don't think that we're necessarily going to see a crash in altcoins across the board. But it's interesting they'd all be selling off at once because part of the, the maturation, if we want to call it that, of crypto is supposed to be that all these different coins have different applications. They have different monetary policy. They have different ownership and they have different, you know, Bitcoin has a fixed supply, but not all of them do. Um, I I wonder what you think in terms of people buying on the dips. Are they going to go to something like Ethereum? Are they more likely to stick with something like Bitcoin? And where might that dip buying be coming from? That's a great question. It's really hard to know. I mean, I think there's two types of investors out there. There's investors that really understand the difference between these different coins. They know what Ether is being used for. They know the fundamentals behind these altcoins. And then there's going to be investors that are just going to be looking for a good buy, right? And they're just going to go down the list and say, okay, there's Bitcoin and then there's Ether and what's the next Ether, right? So I think it's just going to really depend on on, on the investor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I'm sure we'll learn more about it in the days ahead. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. 
Thank you. Emily Parker from Coindesk. With crypto under pressure, like I said, it's not just Bitcoin at risk, but it's also companies themselves that are related to the mining of cryptocurrencies that are under some selling pressure. NVIDIA had gotten a huge boost this year as demand for crypto mining took off. But the stock, look at this, it's down 13.5% today. We're down 14% off the recent highs. Could it be at risk of losing more of these gains? Let's get out to Josh Lipton with more for us. Josh. Kelly, remember NVIDIA operates two big segments, right? So you have chips for those big cloud vendors for use in their data centers and chips used to improve video game performance in PCs and notebooks. But those chips are used for something else too, we know, cryptocurrency mining. Demand for that can be strong as crypto prices move sharply higher. NVIDIA has actually been making some interesting moves in this space, though, updating its video game cards, making them less efficient at mining the popular cryptocurrency Ethereum. Matt Bryson over at Wedbush says NVIDIA's Jensen Wong is doing that because he wants to make sure that his most dedicated, loyal customers, those video game fans around the world, can still secure the NVIDIA products they want. Bryson says crypto mining is not a core market for NVIDIA, but it can help or hurt results, he says, depending on the quarter. However, Matt thinks gaming is so red hot right now that it's going to shield NVIDIA from any potential crypto-related fallout. On the other hand, Piper's Harsh Kumar says this is a risk that NVIDIA investors should be thinking about here. When crypto prices drop, Kumar says, demand can drop from crypto miners for those NVIDIA products as well. Though Kumar still does have a buy on NVIDIA because he's a fan, he tells me, of its data center business. NVIDIA reports earnings results next Wednesday. Kelly, back to you. A good reminder of all the companies caught up in the crypto craze. Josh, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Josh Lipton. We have a news alert on HBO Max. Julia Borston here. What's happening, Julia? Well, Kelly, Warner Media's HBO Max announcing this morning that its ad-supported tier will launch the first week of June for $10 a month. That's $5 less than the ad-free version, adding that it's committed to providing the lightest ad load among ad-supported streamers. This news just out from their upfront ad presentation that happened just now. Now, put to put that pricing in context... Hulu with ads is $6 a month, while there are three other ad-supported services that all have tiers that cost $5 a month. Peacock from CNBC's parent company, NBC Universal, Paramount Plus, and Discovery Plus, all those $5 a month. Now, the big question with the news this week of the Warner Media Discovery merger is how that new company decides to bundle HBO Max and Discovery Plus together, or perhaps even combine them for a new bulked up streamer. Kelly? Julie, can I ask you a quick question? Because we've also been covering this week the launch of a couple of significant political ad campaigns. I primarily now watch YouTube that I've paid for to not show me ads. What happens to the advertising industry in a household like mine? I literally, I, I have not seen any political ads. I have not seen any campaign ads. I haven't seen any consumer products ads. I, I see no ads. Well, that's the thing is some people are willing to pay and other people would rather get something for free and have it ad supported or would rather pay a little bit less and get it ad, get ad supported. So there is certainly a market for ad supported streaming. And I think the real appeal right now, both for advertisers and for these companies that are doing these ad supported services, is that if they're doing digital streaming, you can target someone so much better with an ad that is so much more valuable than if you're just showing them an ad on television. So this is really the next generation. We're hearing a lot about that this uh, this week during this upfront ad sales period, this idea of more valuable targeted digital video streaming advertising. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I definitely get that. I just wonder almost if there's going to be regulation in the long run to say, okay, even for the households who don't want ads, you got to 
they have to watch a campaign ad every now and then or something. But that's why we don't want to turn them off anyway. Uh, anyway, Julia, we appreciate it for now. Thank you for bringing us the latest news on the pricing there of HBO Max. Coming up, the XLK Tech Sector ETF is on pace for its worst, worst month since October. My next guest says it's time to buy tech, but the names he'd buy might surprise you. We'll tell you what they are. Plus, Square and PayPal are under pressure as Bitcoin sells off. Are these companies too reliant on crypto? We'll debate that coming up in a moment. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are selling off with tech once again leading the declines today. As Some of the big names especially are under pressure. In the past month, Tesla is down 22 percent. Netflix is down 13 percent. Apple, Microsoft and Amazon, they're all down 5 percent or more. My next guest says this pullback is creating some buying opportunities, but not necessarily in some of those biggest names. Joining me now is Mike Lippert. He's portfolio manager of the Barron Opportunity Fund. The Morningstar Five Star Fund is down this year, but up 50 percent over the past year. And I think I just read 157 percent over five years. Mike, welcome. Thanks for being here. Let's start with why you're not necessarily pounding the table on a name like Amazon or Apple right now. I mean, you do have a lot of these bigger names in your portfolio. Why not? uh, Where's your enthusiasm, I guess, is my question for some of the bigger names. Yeah, our our enthusiasm at at Barron has mostly been where we can differentiate in our research. Everybody knows the Amazons and Apples of the world, and we we certainly um, are big fans of Amazon in particular and own Amazon in our portfolio. But we look for companies that are really differentiated and will offer us and our shareholders differentiated returns. And, you know, some of those are, you know, highlighted for you guys, some of the, you know, mid cap type companies. Absolutely. And before I get into this, one more question, because you're actually echoing something I guess Nancy Tangler told us yesterday. She was very excited about the opportunity in Amazon, which she said hadn't gone anywhere for a year, but uh, was not buying Apple. So why isn't Apple in your portfolio? I mean, again, going back to, as you said, the research driven nature of what you do, why is that one sitting out? Yeah, I think, frankly, um, you know, Amazon is now much more of a, uh, sorry, Apple is much more of a replacement company, um, replacing existing iPhones. They certainly had a burst last year where everybody worked from home and school from home, had to buy iPads and devices. Um, but the innovation level at Apple um, is not the same today as it has been years ago, just because where we are in the development of things like the iPhone and the iPad. And um, I, I think Apple's a great company, but essentially we find you know, better return opportunities across some different companies in the broader technology space. Sure. No, it's fascinating. So let's talk about those. You have three in particular, uh, well, the likes of Zoom Info. Yeah, Zoom Info um, is one of the leaders in what you call business-to-business 
data, software, and intelligence. Um, they help companies um, target customers, um, improve the speed of their go-to-market, um, their salespeople to be more efficient. Um, you would think that this is a market that has been going on for a very long time, but businesses today are just starting to use data to improve their go-to-market activities. And therefore, um, Zoom is just scratching the surface. Um, another thing is they have multiple products. So they're you know, what we call a second act company, not just one act, but multiple acts, hmm. where they're doing things like sales enablement, um, buyer intent, recruiting. And this is a really unique company, you know, right now growing 50%, but we think for a long time we'll grow 40% with also free cash flow margins at the 40% level. So wow. you don't find many 40-40 type companies out there. No, I almost feel like you're talking about basketball stats or something. So also <laughs> Ring Central and C Day, tell me about those. So Ring Central um, is focused on what they call unified communications, basically digitizing your communications and unified meaning voice, video, and messaging. Um, we are just, again, scratching the surface of the penetration of what we'll call cloud communications from legacy physical equipment-based communications. Um, Ring Central is one of the leaders in the space, the Magic Quadrant leader from Gartner. And what's really interesting is the partnerships they've developed where over 200 million of the 400 million legacy seats are partners of Ring Central, players like Avaya, Atos, and then mm -hmm. names that most people know, AT&T and recently signed Verizon, are all selling Ring Central software to their customers. And that's another business that we think can accelerate into mid 30% type growth. Um, you know, with over the next several years, expanding operating and free cash flow margins. Wow. So I want to ask you about Seed Day, but in fairness, and they're going to kill me, but I also want to ask if you're sticking with Pinterest, which is down 13% year to date. A lot of our audience might be interested in if you're going to stick with that. Yeah, we are sticking with Pinterest. I mean, a lot of people are focused on just their recent guidance on MAUs, monthly active users, and certainly that had a burst last year with everyone staying at home. But the monetizable um, engagement on that platform has only accelerated and has continued to hold in very, very solidly including people searching on their platform for products, not just for ideas. And so, you know, losing a couple of million people that were just kind of looking at the platform, but not really um, focusing on the monetizable, for example, shopping sections of the platform, I don't think is significant. And, um, you know, we believe that Pinterest will grow at a very, very solid rate for not just this year, but for several years to come. That's fascinating. Thank I, I could feel like I keep this going for quite some time. Mike, thank you very much uh, for being here today, and we'd love to continue the conversation. Thank you for having me on. Mike Lippert with the Barron Opportunity Fund. Coming up, as crypto sells off, gold is hitting its highest level in more than four months. Does it signal a more long-term flight to safety trade? We'll dig into that ahead. And before we go, let's take a look at Squarespace. Today's IPO just opened for trading. It's slightly in the red. The reference price was $50 a share. It was a direct listing. We're down, as I mentioned, into about the 49 and change area. We'll keep a close eye on SQSP. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a pretty big market day here. Let's get you a quick check on where we stand. At the lows, the Dow was down 596 points. We've come quite a ways off that, about cut it in half. We're down 247 right now, three quarters of a percent. And the Dow is the worst performer today. It's not the NASDAQ, which is only down about half a percent. The laggards and the blue chip uh, index are Chevron, Goldman Sachs, and Boeing. And you can see these are not major declines. Over in the S&P, Freeport, McMoran, SVB Financial, and Tractor Supply weighing on that uh, average, uh, I should say, index. Freeport, McMoran is down 5.5%. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update for us. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. On Capitol Hill, a standing ovation for 170-year-old Viola Fletcher. She is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Greenwood Race Massacre. At a hearing on how to compensate survivors and their descendants for all they've lost, Fletcher shared her memories. For 70 years, the city of Tulsa and its stream of chummers told us that the massacre didn't happen, like we didn't see it with our own eyes. You have, <coughs> have me here right now. You see Mother Randall, you see my brother, Hughes Van Ellis. We live this history and we can't ignore it. Former President Trump says that he is being unfairly attacked and abused by what he calls a corrupt investigation. This in reaction to reports that New York's attorney general has launched a criminal probe of Trump's family business. In addition to a civil probe that's been going on for years, she isn't saying what has changed. But see what information has come out recently and how prosecutors may join forces to investigate Trump tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. And in Pittsburgh, a fire in one of Pittsburgh's most recognizable high-rise buildings. Firefighters rushed to the Gulf Tower, where a transformer blew out in the basement. You could uh, see smoke rising through the 44-story building. You're there you see it so far, though no injuries have been reported. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Yikes. Uh, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Canaries in the coal mine, the flight to safety, and will big bets blow up? It's all coming up in today's crypto rapid-fire edition. But first, it's time for Show & Tell. We show the chart, tell you the story, and today's chart is Target, up 5% on great earnings. Unlike retail yesterday, it's actually managing to book some gains. Its comp sales were up 23% year-on-year. Its digital sales up 50% from a year ago. Here's why CEO Brian Cornell doesn't see this trend slowing anytime soon. We're feeling very confident about our position today. And I look at the proof point from Q1, we picked up another billion dollars in market share on top of $9 billion of share last year. And to me, that's just a sign that we've connected with the consumer. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire Crypto Edition today. With us are Kate Rooney, Mike Santoli, and back for more is Nancy Tangler, CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. And it is wonderful to have you all here. Let's drill down on two high-flying parts of the market that could be canaries in the coal mine right now. We're talking about cryptocurrencies and the IPO market. So on the crypto side, as we've been reporting all day, Bitcoin has gone from an all-time high of over $65,000 mid-April to touching $30,000 Today, Now, at the time, it had booked a ninefold gain, so some correction here is understandable. Bitcoin and Dogecoin are both now down uh, 40% from their highs. Ether is off more than 25%. Now let's turn to IPOs, which ran red hot for a lot of last year as well. But the Renaissance IPO ETF is down more than 20% in the past three months. And take a look at Squarespace. It just opened for trading after its direct listing today. Opened, Michael, at 48. I believe the first time a direct listing has opened below its IPO price. 
Yes, below that uh, that sort of reference oh, price, reference which everyone price, says, yeah. oh, don't pay attention to that. There's no real money there. But uh, obviously it, s- it says something that went below uh, where people hoped the bidding would start. I think what unifies these things is uh, we did see a kind of a peak in retail investor risk appetites in various ways from February 12th, if you want to actually pinpoint the date. That's when you saw things like the solar stocks, the SPACs, the IPO ETF that you just pointed out. They all pretty much topped on that day. And what might bring that in line with what's going on with crypto is it's an appetite to buy the next new untested thing and to believe that, uh, you know, that, that you know, the, we're going to have faith in the future. Those that, that's about as, as much of a connection as I was make, make among those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that the overall market has kind of looked at all that and said, OK, that's a positive because now we're maybe a little bit more grounded in terms of and, the underpinnings. And that's exactly my question for you, Nancy. Are these corrections a healthy sign for investors in, let's say, something like the boring old S&P 500, or are they a warning sign because they're kind of the, the tip of the, the spear here? Well, Kelly, I think um, I think they're good for the for the overall market and the ability to move this bull forward uh, much more. Um, we're at the early stages of a, of a business cycle. Earnings growth we know is going to be fabulous for reopening uh, economic growth. The supply chain will eventually get fixed. And so to see these rolling uh, rotations and rolling corrections is actually quite good. And I think uh, provides investors with an opportunity to to get access to stocks that they haven't been able to own in the past because they were too expensive. Sure. No, fair enough. And Kate, we should also point out Bitcoin is well off the lows. I mean, we're already back around 40,000. Um, I don't know what more there is to say about why we flushed so rapidly other than that this is can, what can often happen in any stock or asset class like this, let alone one like crypto. If you blinked or took a day off and you know fell asleep last night, Bitcoin was around 40,000. It's right. back at 40,000 now. In the meantime, was up and down by 30%. So this is an asset that can lose 30%, a third of its value in the matter of a few hours. So I think that is really becoming apparent for maybe institutions who are thinking, hey, maybe we'll put 2% of our, our cash into Bitcoin and the ESG argument that Elon Musk pointed out. So there are certain things happening this week that have been a reality with Bitcoin, but I think it sort of pokes a hole in the argument that institutions are all pouring in because they see it as a safe haven asset. It is much more of a high growth risk asset than it is, you know, digital gold. You had a great note by JP Morgan that I know we'll get to. But uh, Mike Santoli's point about sort of the risk appetite, Bitcoin, I've heard it called boomer coin. It was sort of seen as the old school, safer (laughs) version of cryptocurrencies. It was pretty stable. You know, I've been covering this for three or four years now. It's uh, 55,000 for the last two weeks, two or three weeks. You know, those looking for a lot of upside, if they got into that level, really didn't see the same 10,000 percent gains that Dogecoin was seeing, for example. (laughs) Mike, what would you add uh, on that? And and by the way, on the on the IPO market piece of this, I'm just interested in whether the fact that these are new stocks coming to market, like Nancy said, is this a correction to a healthier price point for investors to access? Or is this telling us something that, you know, their underperformance signals that liquidity in general is going to be a problem uh, here for some time? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a broader liquidity issue. I do think that there was a complete supply-demand imbalance in terms of the number of new stocks coming to market, most of them SPACs, but even, uh, you know, there was also just a rush of these younger companies that were just ready to go because they'd been in private hands for so long. So I think it's more digestion of those things. And absolutely, there's been a rationalization of valuations and, and getting to some kind of a more of a, uh, a kind of a better price point. You went from everything trading at 20 times revenues in the SaaS and the software space down to 10 right now. I don't know if that's cheap, 
but it's cheaper. All right, fair enough. And I'm just going to gloss over the boomer coin point, Nancy, and talk to you about <laughs> gold and silver. Speaking of old school, uh, J.P. Morgan is saying that the uh, that institutional investors are shifting away from Bitcoin and bucking the trend of the previous two quarters. They're saying that short-term sell signals for Bitcoin fell into negative territory for the first time since March 2020, but long-term indicators are still positive. Nancy, anecdotally, a lot of the younger generations, even who are really hot on things like Dogecoin, are now hot on things like silver. Is it time to turn towards silver and gold? Well, I think it certainly was time in the fall, and it, and I still think there's room to go in the trade. We, we developed a strategy of alternatives, and in that were industrial metals that are going to benefit from planetary de- decarbonization, electrification of vehicles, and silver is a big part of that. We also own uh, an ETF that, that invests in gold miners. Um, but and blockchain, because the difficulty with Bitcoin is that, first of all, it's concentrated in very few hands. Ninety five percent of Bitcoin is owned by two percent of wallets and and it's difficult to value. And and so what we've decided is we're going to play this a little differently. We're going to uh, gain our exposure to uh, asset classes that are going to not just be safe havens, but also participate in the potential green uh, energy agenda. So, yes, it's the short answer. I just added a little color, <laughs> a little gloss. Uh, Michael, gold and silver, you know, these are people have been making the case for gold for quite some time. It didn't really work last year. You know, you can point to the dollar. You can point to what's going on, uh, even with the deficit, with interest rates, some other factors. All of a sudden now we're really seeing uh, more demand. What, what do you think is behind that? Well, first of all, it does trade in line, not so much with inflation fears, not even so much directly with interest rates, but with real Yield. So those are pretty deeply negative, and that's gotten a bid. Also, it has been trading inversely to cryptocurrencies. Yes. There's no way not to, to say that. And I think that's very illuminating in terms of what crypto is right now, uh, and it, 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 in the sense that it's an alternative asset that is not the liability of a state or, or anybody else, a private institution or a central bank, just like gold has never been, but also means there's no intrinsic value whatsoever. Let's not talk about you know, what the right price or the wrong price is for either gold or crypto, because it is essentially just pure crowd psychology attached to uh, a technology. Yeah, but gold, you can, I guess, wear as jewelry. Kate, but this is exactly the point that you were making about Bitcoin being a risk asset, uh, and that's something the institutional community has to think about. And if they back away, that's a big problem for Bitcoin bulls. Maybe we're not there yet. They might look at this as a buying opportunity. But if we go back to, you know, kind of the, the case for silver and gold, or who would be owning those, or what have you, I mean, Buyers coming out of that market and into Bitcoin has been a big part of the thesis. And anyone in Bitcoin who thought it was a hedge for the markets or inflation or anything like that, this is what Mike is saying. It's not. It's, it seems to be almost 100 percent correlated to stock prices. Exactly. And that's a great point about institutions. That's really been one of the big drivers of the bull case of Bitcoin, saying you know some of these fund managers are coming in and seeing it in a certain way. And I think it is sort of this idealistic view of Bitcoin, that it could be these things. It could eventually replace gold. And a lot of it is high growth, long term view. But I think there are younger, maybe tech investors who say, if I am going to have a long term thesis that I hold and don't think about similar in a way that you would think about gold, you hear that more sort of in the Silicon Valley group of there's believers in Bitcoin. I agree with Mike and the psychology of investors. As long as people agree that it's worth a certain amount, it is right? right. There's not a lot of underlying value, but I think it is very similar to gold. And the other thing I'll point out about Bitcoin that we didn't mention earlier, but uh, analysts I've been talking to have said that it's a lot about margin calls today. So we've talked about sort of the headlines from China, 
Um, the Bitcoin market is becoming more mature and therefore the options market is becoming more mature. So it has been sort of this snowball of liquidation that we've seen. You know, Bitcoin hits a certain price. People have got to sell. So that seems to happen a lot where you see this acceleration of losses or gains in certain instances. Yeah. But that is what I'm hearing. Why? Bitcoin has moved so rapidly today, at least. It's a great point, and I, I don't want to get off on this tangent, but I think it's just something in the back of our minds to think about for people who are trying to access the liquidity in their Bitcoin through, you know, um, taking money out against it. That's going to be difficult if the price remains this volatile and if they're underwater on any of the loans they might have had in order to take that cash out and access it without the tax implications and all the rest of it. But let's talk about some of the companies that are actually more exposed here. Uh, when it does decline, Square and PayPal, you can look at the share prices there. Square in particular is down about 2.5%. They've both been catering towards crypto and pushing the envelope, really, in terms of allowing the average retail investor to buy, sell, and hold these assets. Uh, Square, down about 2.5%. PayPal, about half a percent. But there's also some companies holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet, like Tesla, which is down 3% right now. It's down 22% over the past month. And MicroStrategy is another big one. They're down, Nancy, about 8% today. Nancy, you know, as you guys look through, you know, the kinds of companies that you typically want to buy for, you know, all the balance sheet reasons we talk about, if they put a portion of their cash into Bitcoin, would you immediately back away or would, or would you condone that over time? Well, we own Square, Kelly, and they um, clearly have a commitment to Bitcoin, uh, but it's the company is much more than uh, a Bitcoin play. Uh, it, it's a company, I, I think the payment system in the United States is archaic and is changing and Square's at the center of that. So we're going to take it into consideration. I, I do think that uh, owning it on as, a, as an alternative on one's balance sheet is not necessarily um, a bad thing. Uh, it's just it's just comes with the attendant volatility and investors have to be aware of that, as do corporate management teams. So, um, you know, we're not buying overstock as a secret Bitcoin play. <laughs> but if we find a company with strong fundamentals like Square uh, at current valuations, it's a buy in our work. And so uh, we'll continue to pick away at it and add, add to holdings. Mike, what would you add to that in terms of people being exposed to Bitcoin who may not even realize it? I mean, I, these companies are outliers to some extent, but if it becomes more common for a portion of a corporate treasury to go into crypto assets? I mean, I think you just have to be cognizant of whether it became an outsized bet by the company. MicroStrategy obviously stands out here. They went out and raised debt in the public markets to expressly buy Bitcoin. It was a, it was a mission statement, and it's just sort of attached to this old uh, kind of web services software business that's been around forever. That's just, you know, kind of a gambit that you have to know. That's the, kind of the reason you would either own or avoid MicroStrategy. When it comes to PayPal and Square, it's really more just kind of to have an inventory of Bitcoin to facilitate trading by their customers. But again, it points up the fact when people talk about adoption of crypto or institutional uh, kind of adoption of crypto, what they really mean is owning, trading, lending, borrowing, arbitrage. Hmm. It's not using it as a currency for transactions right, or even right, to build exactly. the infrastructure. No, no. Using it in transactions, Kate, doesn't seem like a big usage case. I'll give you a quick last word on this. Yeah, I think PayPal and Square, Square's been more involved in, in Bitcoin, especially because of Jack Dorsey, who's a big believer. PayPal, it seems like they did this in order to have people stay on their platform. It might be a loss leader. They just want people to not leave PayPal or Venmo, have another reason to open the PayPal app and use it. It doesn't seem like they are as committed to Bitcoin and it doesn't really add much to the balance sheet. Square posted a huge revenue number because of Bitcoin trading, the profit number was almost nothing. So it's really not adding to the bottom line, but it's important in sort of the whole ecosystem. If others start coming out 
adding Bitcoin trading. They just don't want to be behind in that yeah. sense. And it's benefiting PayPal today, which is almost about to turn positive for all the reasons you mentioned. All right, we'll leave it there. Nancy, can you tell us that software name yet that you were buying yesterday? Adobe. Oh, we got now <laughs> after everything that's happened. You're buying Adobe now? Yeah. We are. We think a long-term strategy, it, it, the long-term narrative is good for this company. Wow. We like the deal with FedEx, and it's it's much more attractive on a valuation basis. Well, there you go. We can throw a little uh, stock recommendation in at the very end. Uh, great to have you all here, Nancy Tangler, Michael Santoli, and Kate Rooney. Still ahead, stocks are selling off today, but one market strategist says the biggest risks out there aren't negative. It's actually optimism that could tip off the rotation out of growth names. We'll dig more into that next. Welcome back. The sell-off in the market continues today with all three averages down for a third straight day. Dow's down 270, but we're about half off the session lows. The Dow and S&P are on pace for their worst week in nearly three months. And believe it or not, my next guest says optimism is still the biggest risk to the markets right now. Let's bring in Marco Papich. He's chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. Marco, it's good to check in with you again. And uh, is what's playing out this week starting to give us that reset that you think we need? Yes, I think so. Although we are still a long way from optimism being priced in by the bond market. I mean, it, you know, the tenure is at like 166. It could be much higher. And that's, that's sort of what worries me. I think that the equity market has responded to growth, to inflation, to optimism. The bond market doesn't seem to have done that. And um, I worry that as it does, it will force more rotation out of growth into value. The problem is that value has rallied off the lows. Um, and so the rotation might be a little bit more of a sell-off than you know, a smooth sailing. Okay, this is fascinating. So let, let me break down this, this first piece on bond yields because we have the Fed minutes coming out in just a few moments. And there's been some speculation about how hawkish they might be if they're talking about conditions for a taper, if they're talking about just how transitory inflation may or may not be. Um, Explain what kind of taper tantrum, if any, you think is pent up in the bond market right now. So I think that that's a really important point. I think right now the market is not listening to the Fed. The market has not been listening to the Fed since Wyoming of last year. Hmm. Um, I mean, they've been very consistent in their rhetoric. They're going to look through inflation. Um, and one of the reasons they're going to look through inflation, because they have completely bought on board this you know, socio-political experiment that we have, where both monetary and fiscal policy are going to try to redistribute wealth in the country. And I think that the median investor is completely ignoring this. And I think they will continue to ignore it, even as the minutes are released. So, so, who, oh, so if they're ignoring it, is that to their peril or to their benefit? In other words, are they saying to the Fed, we don't believe you're going to be able to achieve this. We think you're going to have to taper and we're betting on that. Or are they betting the wrong way? Because you're saying, no, the Fed is serious about these goals and it will let inflation run hot in order to achieve that. So, I mean, kind of both. Right now, the median investor, I think, given the market uh, action, uh, is definitely thinking that the Fed is going to have to turn hawkish. The median economist is expecting tapering Q4. Um, the OIS curve is predicting, you know, three hikes by the end of 2023. Uh, and I think that at some point... Uh, that's going to be proven incorrect. So over the next uh, couple of months, you can continue to have sideways markets, uh, maybe more downside risk to risk assets. But when investors get convinced that the Fed is going to sit on the sideline, that's when the next leg of this bull market is going to happen. Okay, so final weird question is, is I think through all of this, you know, if the Fed stays on the sidelines, that could mean higher 
long-term bond yields. Obviously, they may not raise the overnight rate if markets are betting on that, but you'd have to imagine the 10-year is higher in a scenario where they, where they don't hike rates than in a scenario in which they do. So which way does this play out in terms of the stock market? Can, can stocks kind of ignore this and do well no matter what? Um, and for bond investors, it, should they basically say, OK, if we want higher yields, then we should want the Fed to stay on the sidelines? You know, I, I don't know what you do as a bond investor right now. I mean, I, I just don't see any scenario in which you're you're really going to profit other than, you know, betting on steepening of the yield curve. Hmm. Uh, I think for uh, equity investors next, as I said, and I mean, next couple of months are going to be tricky. Uh, this is the difficult part of the bull market as investors in the Fed have a little bit of a tug on war. But at some point when the Fed relents and convinces the investors that, no, we're, we are sitting on the sidelines, nothing's going to move us. Uh, I think you're going to have to shift over from bonds into equities and especially into commodities and emerging markets. Now, that period, though, we haven't reached that yet because the Fed has not convinced the median investor yet that they are going to remain on the sidelines. Yeah, that's coming. it's fascinating because, like you say, once they rotate into stocks with valuations already pricing in, you know, a lot better horizons in financials and in energy and some of these commodity names – and then this wave of capital possibly comes in. You get into an interesting situation. Uh, Marco, we'll check back in with you post minutes and hopefully kind of see which leg of this trade is playing out. But for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. Marco Papich joining me from Clock Tower. The semis are reversing course. They're higher now today despite the broad sell-off. But they're still down about 6% over the past month as the chip shortage continues. Could the sector be on the verge of getting a $52 billion boost from Washington? That's next. Welcome back. We continue to see volatile trading for the chip space. The SMH semiconductor turning positive after a rough start to the day. It's still down 5% for the month as chip shortages continue. Now Congress is working to dedicate billions of dollars to support the industry. Elon Moy has the very latest. Elon? Well, Kelly, this is a bipartisan effort underway in the Senate that would give the industry $52 billion over five years. It creates an incentive to build or expand manufacturing of semiconductors right here in the U.S. There's also money to secure the industry's supply chain, create new research programs at the Defense Department, and establish a national semiconductor technology center. Now, this would be a major win for the industry. Its trade group projects it would create 185,000 new jobs each year, and add $24.6 billion to the economy. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Republican Senator Todd Young are leading this charge. They say this funding is critical to economic and national security, as well as to compete against China. The money for chips is attached to an even bigger bill called the Endless Frontiers Act. That would invest $120 billion in U.S. R&D more broadly. There are also provisions on cybersecurity and Buy American as well. So, Kelly, Schumer wants the Senate to vote on this entire package by the end of next week. Back wow. over to you. Uh, T.J. Uh, Hill said to uh, not T.J. Rogers said not to do it. Of course, Cypress uh, Semiconductor came on our show and said it wasn't a good idea. These are profitable companies. We shouldn't do it. They're doing it anyway. And Elon, and you have to imagine other industries are now uh, going to be saying, well, maybe we could use uh, a little bit of support as well. Well, certainly. I mean, the Endless Frontiers Act has a lot of money that would go to the technology sector broadly. Uh, the industry, the technology industry has been supportive of it. IBM CEO Arvind Krishna has come out personally in favor of it. So this would be a big win for business and Democrats say a big win for science as well. Elon, appreciate it. Elon Moy on Capitol Hill. That does it for us today. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.